Hello, this is Dale Spencer, and welcome to the Being Our Best podcast. I'm here with a special guest today, Spencer Allenstein, and uh, I would like to introduce Spencer. He uh, is a colleague of mine, and uh, dare I say, friend Spencer? You can stretch it out for sure. <laughs> right, thank you. Uh, you work, uh, you volunteer for the state and the city as well. And you are a test manager in the field of automated test electronics. I, my condolences. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I invited you here today to help us with being our best. So I, I thank you for accepting my invitation. I'm honored to be here. Great. That, that touches me. Um, or I am touched. <laughs> uh, so... I think you have a general idea of what we would like to, or what I would like to talk about and what maybe a little bit of what you would like to say. As you, as you well know, I've been thinking about problems within the United States specifically for quite some time now. Um, I think we have gone to many lunches together and talked about this for at least a decade. I apologize for boring you. <laughs> that's okay. I enjoy the topic as well. Um, that's good. So uh, there are a lot of big topics. I've listed them in the first episode and we kind of covered them a little bit as well. I think stress and poverty, hunger and homelessness are some of the ones that we keyed in on when we uh, spoke earlier this week. And uh, I, for me, I know stress is, is a big problem and there are other problems that people face that are <clears throat> even more challenging than just being stressed out. So um, I wanted to first ask you, um, if you look at these larger issues, is there anyone in particular that that uh, you feel hits home with you? Uh, well, thankfully, I don't have any of the, the dangers that are life-threatening. I mean, I, I'm not in poverty. I'm not I'm not in danger of going hungry or homeless, at least in the immediate sense. So stress is something that uh, I deal with, but thankfully I don't have any of the larger issues personally. Yeah. Are, are you aware of, uh, or what is your awareness level of some something like uh, homelessness and uh, poverty? Uh, you know, most of what we, most of what I'm exposed to is uh, news coverage of issues. Uh, but there are also things we see firsthand. I mean, right. I've been to San Francisco in the last few years and saw firsthand the the scale that they are facing those issues. Was it something that was shocking to you? Uh, I don't know. I was aware of it beforehand, mm -hmm. uh, but it was seeing it firsthand really, really cemented yeah. the problem right. in my consciousness. Yeah. Um, I think one of the topics that we discussed a while back, actually, I can't believe how long it's been, was was actually hunger. And I had basically asked the question, well, has anybody in the United States in the near term, have, has anybody died of, of hunger? Um, is, is that an issue? And the answer was that I found was kind of surprising. If I recall correctly, it was around a thousand people within the U.S. have died of hunger. Uh, do you 
uh, happen to recall that conversation? I recall that conversation. I don't recall the uh, statistics we were able to uncover. <laughs> um, well, I, I can certainly check those, but uh, uh, a caveat was that that uh, it was actually listed as malnutrition. So maybe not what people think of as in terms of hunger. The people that were impacted the most were the elderly that were dependent upon services like Meals on Wheels. Uh, for those of you that don't know what Meals on Wheels is, that's uh, I believe it's a nonprofit organization um, that uh, seeks to bring food to people that are otherwise unable to get their meals. Uh, Homebound individuals. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think that uh, they, um, with COVID, that has increased quite a bit as well. Most likely, yes. Yeah. So I know for, for me, that was actually kind of an eye opener to, to see that people were struggling so much just with something so basic as, as food. How big of an issue do you think, or widespread of an issue do you think that is? I know you just mentioned your experience with San, San Francisco. Yeah, um, for hunger, I don't know. If we look back historically, uh, say in the 1930s with the Dust Bowl and Depression, there's definitely a much more wide scale danger of starvation, I mean, literally not having access to food, uh, the calories necessary for life. I think that's gotten a lot better. We're not definitely not facing a situation like that anymore. I don't know what the situation looks like today. I think people will have a lot more access to uh, food banks and social safety net programs. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, people who in the past would have fallen into that danger have means to to survive. All right. I think that's fairly accurate. And if we look at the statistics, that that is uh, also supports what you just mentioned. So I, I don't know, uh, on, a, on a worldview, that's probably most likely not the case. I think that there's hunger is still an issue. Uh, but within the U.S. itself, I think we're fairly fortunate yeah, for a lot of people now, they talk about uh, food insecurity, of not knowing where your food is going to come from for the next day. You know, like if you're if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and your pantry is bare, you know, are you going to have enough money the next day to buy the food you need for you and your family? Oh, I haven't heard that term before. I, I thank you for sharing that. Is that something that you came across because of COVID, or you were aware of uh, that? No, before? I think I've heard that term for a couple of years now. Oh, okay. Um, it, it's that due to your exposure through uh, working with the church, with the, your church, or? Uh, no, I think it's just things I've picked up in the media. Oh, okay. Um, you know, that brings up a really interesting point, insecurity. Um, I, I feel like that's where a lot of my stress comes from personally, uh, the idea that we're living, or me personally, I live from day to day with not much of a safety net under me. Uh, I, I don't feel like I worry about food so much as I would about housing, for instance. Is insecurity of um, your living conditions, whether you might have some type of uh, disaster befall you, whether it's losing your job or something along those lines, is that a big source of stress? Uh, do you feel like you're, you would be prepared for anything that might happen? I think that opens the door to a big topic of uh, 
are people secure in maintaining the lifestyle that they are striving for and trying to maintain? You know, I, I have very little concern that I would fall and fall through the cracks, but, you know, maintaining the lifestyle that me and my family strive for and are used to is definitely an ongoing concern, but that's not at the, the level of surviving. That's at the level of surviving how I want to live. Right. That, that makes sense. I think it's easy to get caught up in how we want to live and not see the forest through the trees, so to speak. Yeah, if you look back, uh, you know, how we live today, we're, we have nice houses. We were able to eat nice meals occasionally. I mean, people, not even in the 30s, like in the 50s would have been, wow, I mean, that's an awesome life to have. But here we are stressed about oh, can I maintain this? Do I have enough income to maintain this lifestyle or even step up my lifestyle without really appreciating that we do have a lot of conveniences and luxuries in our lives? That's a good point. Um, I guess uh, it gets even worse as you make more money, potentially. You worry about holding on to what you have. Yeah, definitely could. I mean, society really paints a picture into your head of what your life should look like in comparison to you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. And... I think that's really one of the main drivers of stress that that a lot of middle class and upper class people uh, deal with because we're not at the level where we're risking, you know, not having food tomorrow. Right. We're just at the level of, oh man, I really hope I have enough to, to go out and party this weekend or get that new car I want. Yeah, um, I, I think that's true. Do you think it is something that society tells us or is it a human condition to, to want to you know, to get acclimated to your environment, to want those things and expect them and to keep looking for something more and not be satisfied. I think it's part of human nature, uh, but I mean, society is driven by human nature, so I don't know exactly how to draw the line between the two. Do you have any advice for us for how to stop and smell the roses, Spencer? No, I don't think I have any uh, sage words of wisdom to offer, <laughs> uh, but just, you know, try not to stress the small stuff and recognize that our lives actually have a lot of uh, good in them and try to appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. I think that's uh, that is indeed sage wisdom. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I wanted to uh, touch on it from a different point. I think you and I, we have roughly the same position at work and with respect to the rest of the U.S., roughly the same pay scales, I would assume. What about people that say are making are in the first tier of uh, the tax bracket or making maybe less than 20,000. I think they have a lot of stresses in their lives. Um, you know, for us, we're trying to, to maintain a, a fairly comfortable style of living, but uh, for a lot of people at the bottom brackets, it's about maintaining food for your kids. Uh, you know, trying to not send them to school in raggedy clothes, uh, trying to keep a roof over your head, trying to keep the landlord off your back. Right. Try to get enough shifts at work so you can get the income you need. So it's a lot more uh, life or death struggle. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Food is always a concern in the the day to day, but I do like the expression that you use, which was uh, food uh, security. Food insecurity. Insecurity. Well, I would like food security, so. Okay, I guess. All right. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, you did bring up a point that I wanted to touch on. Um, 
that is the different sectors of society that require special attention. You mentioned one of them. Children are incapable, especially at a young age, of providing for themselves. And who who is responsible for that? I think parents want to be responsible for their kids. But before we get into that, maybe I should step back and ask, um, what what is the basic level of care that that we expect in a modern developed society? Not not necessarily what should the government provide, but just what what is the general ethical expectation in your mind? I think we should, uh, you know, there's really a gray area. It's about taking reasonable steps to make sure everybody has an opportunity to not just survive, but to thrive. And we would like society and our world to be uh, helping everybody helping everybody have an opportunity to to live independently and have what they would consider in their own mind a successful life. Okay. Um, if we could reach that goal, that, that would be great. Yeah, it's a very lofty, most likely impractical goal. But if you're asking what an ideal world would look like, it would be you know that. What, what do you think a practical one might look like that we could potentially achieve? Can you clarify the question? I mean, you mentioned that you would like to see everybody be able to pursue their individual goals and live the life that they wanted. I, I think that if we could reach that point, that might be more of a utopia, is in my mind. Um, yeah, it would be very much, a, you know, like a sci-fi kind of future where there's abundance of everything and there are fewer pressures. Right. Right now, without the the sci-fi. What is a reasonable expectation for a society like the United States, which has a reasonable abundance of things? You compared the 1950s to today. I mean, certainly we have a lot more today. And and some of it is that we are just never really satisfied. But what, what is the base level that we should expect with our level of technology and infrastructure that we have today? Well, I think we've seen a lot of gains uh, over generations going back from, uh, you know, most kids not completing, say, fourth grade or eighth grade. Um, public education is one of the things that we provide as a society to help everybody get a good start in life. And then as part of that, I mean, most school, I think every school district has uh, money for kids who can't afford to buy their lunch and other food programs like breakfast programs to try to make sure those kids have nutrition necessary in their lives. So I think what we primarily do is we say, look, for the kids as they're growing up till they graduate high school, we're going to try to keep them, you know, fed and give them education because the education is really the key to, is seen as the key to really helping people fulfill their dreams. All right. I guess that would be the American dream. I guess. But <laughs> I mean, the need for education, I would think, is worldwide. Yeah. Um, do you think that the... The possibility exists in a reasonable sense for someone to come from nothing and take advantage of education and what is offered and, and pull themselves up from their own bootstraps, so to speak. I definitely think it's possible, but I mean, there's definitely obstacles to overcome. You know, you and I have college degrees where yes. our kids have struggles in education. We're able to step in and help them. 
Uh, we're both generally working 40 to 50 hours a week, but we're home most of the time when our, to help our kids. A lot of kids don't have that benefit when they have a single parent or parents working two jobs who aren't there to help them get through education and actually learn, you know, not just not just progress to the next grade level, but to actually absorb and understand. Right. Well, that's a great segue into um, what I wanted to get into, the, the, the special sectors of society that require special attention and care. You've laid the groundwork for what the base level should be, specifically education and food. I, I think I would probably add shelter to that list as well. Sure, absolutely. Who, in your mind, should be responsible for providing that type of care? For most of it, uh, most of it comes from local communities, I think. The issue is that some of the larger things like housing, it's hard for a local community to provide. Uh, if somebody is unable to provide housing for themselves, then low-income housing, but most of that is done at the federal level, is my understanding. That would be Section 8 housing? I believe, I believe that's the correct answer. Yeah, okay. I, I believe so too, but I'll, I'll double-check. Uh, but then, I mean, who is responsible is, you know, I would like to think everybody is responsible, you know, that uh, families, friends, acquaintances, the people you pass on the street if they see you struggling, uh, churches, nonprofits. Okay. And the government at different levels. Okay. Uh, I, I will mention, um, I think, probably the most prolific nonprofit organization that provides housing that isn't part of the government is Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, I'm familiar. I, I don't know that it would provide the infrastructure necessary to meet the demand, though. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, families they can help per year. Yeah. Is it a spreadsheet question? It could be a spreadsheet question. All right. Well, um, I guess the intent is there. So I think the the factors or forces that would drive that type of infrastructure to be in place for people is in, I don't know that it's necessarily there for a nonprofit organization. Yeah, it's a very daunting uh, need yeah, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question. Would Do you think that there is at least a basic level that the government should be involved uh, beyond Section 8 housing? I'm sure there are, but I can't quantify those. All right. uh, here in, in the Dallas area, they have uh, infrastructure for homelessness, uh, specifically the bridge is one organization. Yeah, I've done some research into what the statistics are here in Dallas and homelessness, and then I actually went out and tried to get involved and see firsthand. Um, I, I spoke to people that, that are in, in those conditions that are homeless, and I think that it is a service that doesn't necessarily meet everyone's needs. Uh, and there's always a concern of safety on the streets, uh, as there is anywhere for that matter. I, th I think it is an area where we could definitely do better, but I, I don't know the answer. What would you do if you lost your job? Uh, well, I uh, 
I'm lucky to have what I consider to be a safety net with family and friends. Um, so I would rely heavily on the uh, good the goodwill of others that I know care about me and my family and how we're doing. But a lot of people aren't lucky enough to have that kind of stability, uh, the kind of whether they don't have the relationships with those people in their lives or those people wouldn't be able to provide for them. How, how long do you think that uh, people would, your family would take you in? That's a good question. <laughs> they probably take my kids in a lot longer than they take me in. Oh, uh, well, that's reasonable. <laughs> what, what about, would, would six months be too long? Uh, it would probably cause a lot of stress at that duration, but I think they would. All right. Well, I'm, it's good that you have that support network. Um, what do you think of other cultures and societies or political systems that, that actually provide that through the, the government? Or do they function well, in your opinion? I don't think I have enough experience or uh, information to answer those questions. Well, it's, uh, that's understandable. Um, I guess... I could ask it a different way. Would you feel less stress if you, from what you do know, uh, if you lived in that type of environment? I would think no. Okay. I, don't, I don't feel a lot of stress from it to begin with. Uh, That's good. And one, one of the problems that, I'm going to digress for a moment. Sure. Uh, one of the problems that humans face, and especially I see it in the people around me because I'm in America, is... Uh, the willingness to humble yourself to ask for help you know like a lot of people will struggle in their current situation as it just deteriorates and deteriorates rather than to reach out and admit to their family or friends hey i could really use some help this month you know i don't want to take advantage of your your assistance but if you could help me out this one time it would really help uh, so I, I would love it if we could get past uh stubbornness or Pride, yeah, pride. If yeah. we could, if we could get past pride, yeah. to uh, be willing to ask for help more readily. That's that's an excellent point. Uh, so, our listeners, if you could uh, take Spencer's advice, and if you ever need to reach out and talk to someone, um, don't don't feel ashamed, um, Spencer. You don't know this, but that's actually a challenge I pose to people in the end of my first episode. It hasn't it's been posted not. yet. Yeah, well, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't discuss that. That was not planned. Uh, so thank you for that. I, you, you, Great you, minds I, think alike. Yes. <laughs> um, so, well, the, that is a really good advice, Spencer. Um, I wanted to talk about one other issue. Uh, what about people with physical disabilities or mental disabilities of a large percentage of the homeless population actually are, pres I don't want to say presumed, uh, there have been studies uh, so that, that do have mental uh, disabilities. So it's, that, that could be a lot to take on for a family member to, to devote their entire life to taking care of somebody with either a, a mental or physical handicap. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, unfortunately, I'm no expert on this, but it seems like a lot of those people who have uh, mental issues have really uh, struggled to maintain relationships, healthy relationships with other people, 
with the people in their lives who could be safety nets to the point where they can't rely on those family members anymore. All right. Um, do you think that the government is has an ethical responsibility to at least provide minimal care for someone like that? I would like to say yes, but it becomes a struggle just like it does for uh, the family members, I believe, again, I have no direct experience with this, that I mean, people with mental issues, unless they're willing to get those mental issues treated, and I think that's difficult uh, for a lot of people with mental issues, just like it was hard for them to maintain relationships with their families and friends, it's difficult for them to follow guidelines that the government would try to put in place for them in order to receive that help. So without addressing the mental issue itself, then it can be difficult to provide for their needs. All right. Um, I, I think that's a reasonable uh, concern. Uh, what, one of the things that does pop into my mind, though, is the prison system. I mean, we do provide a basic minimal level of care it's what that is has been defined uh, that that's at the cost of taxpayers or the our expense as well um, I, I would think that we would have at least a similar level for someone that didn't commit a crime yeah I think uh, and if we actually provided effectively care to those people then we could have a lot lower prison population so I think you could do entire shows maybe entire seasons on addressing mental issues yeah. in society, uh, yeah. diagnosing and addressing. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think the mental uh, health issue is a really difficult one. What, what about the a physical handicap? Let's say you have an elderly person that is unable to function anymore, and they don't even have to really be all that old. Let's uh, say someone that is 50 years or older, they are not able to take care of themselves. Who, who should be responsible for that? Uh, again, it would be great if uh, family and community would step up, but often those are so daunting that you know, people look the other way and don't address them. So it does fall to the government, programs like Social Security and uh, Medicare for nursing homes, things like that. All right. Uh, that, that's a good point. Do you think uh, I, that Medicare uh, covers that need? I do not have statistics, but I believe it does attempt to address those needs. Okay. Well, thanks, Spencer. I'm going to make a note of that, and I'll put that in the comments, and we can see if, you know, what the, what the need is there. If it's if, not what the need is, what has been provided with respect to the need, and uh, see if it is sufficient. All right, that sounds good. All right. Um, I would like to say one point about a theme uh, that, that you've given in your answer is that society and family is responsible. Uh, when you think about children, uh, I've often heard someone say, oh, well, they just didn't raise their kid right. Um, that's a reasonable criticism. But at the same time, it's very difficult being a parent, as you well know. I see you shaking your head. Yes, you know the, the difficulties involved. Uh, in, in addition to that, society actually gets something back from children that have been raised well and parents have 
been there and been able to put in the time to raise them. You touched on that a little bit as well when we talked about education and food. Should it really be just the parent's responsibility, each individual? It's hard to start anywhere else. So the primary responsibility has to fall on the parents, but then we have you know, education and extended family members, uh, educators and extended family members, and then the rest of society that's supposed to watch out for these kids and help pull them out of uh, unhealthy situations. Right. Okay. Um, you, you bring up extended family members, and here in the United States, there has been the trend for quite some time now, and I wouldn't even say it's a trend, it is extremely prevalent that we live in a nuclear family, or in other words, just the parents and the kids, no, no extended family members. Do you think that we are missing out on something since we have moved to a nuclear uh, structure, nuclear family structure? Yeah, I would guess um, structurally we were probably missing out on uh, on the benefits of strong relationships with extended family members. All right. Um, do you think there are any advantages to the nuclear family? I mean, why did why did we go down that path? Do you think? I don't know if there are benefits. Um, it became the society norm that uh, once we moved away from farming, where where you would have a lot of kids and try to keep some of the kids at home to help with you help you with a farm when it became you know you basically raise your kids and then you they follow a path that where they get a job they get a, they get married they have kids and they buy a house and off they go yeah i think uh, at least one reason that comes to mind is that it can be difficult dealing with family members <laughs> <laughs> that's very true uh-huh. I don't know if that was the driving reason, though. I, I like your response. <laughs> um, well, the, the theme of this episode, or this particular episode, is actually who was responsible. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you in as one of my first guests, or the very first guest, is because of your perspective on responsibility. It was something new to me. Do you have anything that you would like to add in terms of friends and family? And I think you also mentioned community organizations like churches. Uh, Well, I would just say uh, there's a famous quote by uh, Mr. Rogers that said, you know, when you see, I don't know the exact quote. He said something along the lines of when you see a tragedy going on, uh, if you look around, what you really see is people coming to help. And I think if everybody looked at their own lives that way, uh, that when they're having problems, that there are still people who are willing to come help them, uh, whether it's your family or community, your neighbors, or nonprofits in the area, churches, that there are people out there who who are willing and, and set up, they, you know, they, they give of their own time to help people who are in situations like yours. So yeah. if you look out there and ask for help, that I think you'll see people willing to come help. All right. Well, I think that's a great answer. It resonates very well with uh, my personal belief. And that is, if I ask myself where, if we draw a circle around our ethical boundary, then it's what is in front of us. Um, And as technology expands and that boundary gets larger, then then so does the uh, uh, 
ethical responsibility to to help those around us. But there is a problem with that, that as we see nowadays, that um, we can be so overwhelmed with information that it's hard to sometimes see where we can actually help because we, we see what's going on in the world. That's good advice. We take what is in front of us and help who we can. If someone's reaching out for our hand, then we uh, can give them our hand. Yeah, it's definitely hard to see a lot of the needs in, in our community. You know, I mean, we walk around the grocery store and we'll put, we, see, we see somebody putting groceries in their cart, but we don't realize maybe that that person is thinking, okay, well, I can't buy eggs this week because I've got to pay the mortgage. You know, we, we think they're okay and they're, they're surviving and thriving, but in reality, they're, they're balancing the necessities of life with everything they put in their cart. Right. Would you help someone if you knew at that point? I mean, would, would, would you be in a position to actually not would you, I, I know you personally and I know the answer she has. Yeah, I think, I mean, to some degree and to some, uh, to whatever level I could. All right. Uh, would you take the shirt off your back, Spencer? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not in the grocery store. <laughs> Well, it, it's certainly cold outside. I, I'm assuming that's why you wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, actually, it's very nice out right now. I guess we did touch on physical disabilities. Um, I think one topic we haven't really touched on at all is abuse of the system. And, it, and the system doesn't have to be a government one. It could be a family member taking in another family member. How big of an impediment is that to coming up with a practical solution to these problems? I think it's difficult on when you get into larger scales. Um, there's, there's this perception that if you make the safety net too strong, that people will just fall into the safety net willingly because the safety net will keep them from, from suffering too harsh, too harshly. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard to measure how prevalent actual abuse of those systems is. Is it something that needs to be accounted for? Well, actually, we've discussed this already, what the percentage of dollars is from our budget uh, with respect to the U.S. budget, with respect to the military spending and so forth. I don't know if you recall the... Yeah, I recall. Oh. That was quite an in-depth conversation. Yes, it was. Um, so I'll drive to the question then. Do you think that it's something that needs to be accounted for because it's so expensive otherwise? Uh, I don't know if it needs to be addressed because of the expense. Uh, if we take it down to a low level, if it's a family member trying to help somebody out, then they can see whether or not their efforts are helping, whether the person is uh, striving to help themselves or whether they're just um, taking advantage of your goodwill. As it gets larger and larger, it's harder for a federal program to see if somebody's taking advantage of you. So I think that is an interesting point, Spencer. Do you think that it is necessary for people to try to improve their situation? And if they don't, that's considered abuse? Well, if we look at people who have mental issues, there are a lot of people who just can't help themselves because of their mental issues. Uh, so those people need to have, those people need to first address their mental issues. If I, if I may, let's restrict it to uh, people that are capable 
yeah. and have otherwise have no other handicap, although maybe that's not a reasonable restriction. So I think family, when family is helping out, they they have a certain amount of goodwill that they're willing to invest in somebody. And if they see that person isn't willing to invest in themselves, then they they can quickly tire of trying to help somebody who's not trying to help themselves. Yes, I, I think so. Uh, let's let's take the question from an ethical point of view. Um, what ethical responsibility do we have to someone to meet the basic level of care, even if they're not willing to do their own part? That is a very difficult topic. <laughs> uh, you know, it's basically saying if somebody is if somebody's willing to fall through the cracks, is it our job to prevent them from falling through the cracks? Yes, and, that's another way. And it's it's a hard situation to face. Okay. Um, well, if we think about animals, like pets, for instance, or dogs and cats and other pets, um, we don't demand the same responsibilities from them. We're, we're willing to just care for them. Uh, well, what is the difference? That is an excellent question. It might fall down. It might fall to uh, how they're deemed typically cute, like <laughs> a, like an infant. I mean, they they say inf we consider we are genetically programmed to find infants cute, so that we'll care for them. And it may be the same thing with pets. All right, I, I I have thought about that some, and I don't know that it's just about them being cute. I think that they give something back as well, um, and they also don't make demands. But at the core, I think it is the need for a connection. Um, and even, well, let me take an example of a stray dog that might look all ratty and ugly. You, you might feel bad for that dog and want to help, help it out, right? Yes. I don't think that's a function of cuteness, but maybe, maybe, maybe this genetic uh, programming that you're suggesting is still in effect. So you're correct. With pets, we have a kind of defined structure of what we're going to provide for them. Like, I have dogs in my house. You know, I know I need to feed them a couple times a day. I need to provide water. I need to pet them. And I play with them. And I get things back because I enjoy that interaction as well, which is why we're a dog family. Uh, but if that dog was causing problems every day, if, if every day I came home and a new piece of furniture was torn up, at some point I would reach my limit where I just can't keep this dog. I mean, I'm yeah. doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm giving it food and water. That's, that's an excellent point. Uh, that's, uh, I did not think of that. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of uh, abandoned pets, uh, dogs and cats, uh, because, because probably because of those reasons and some maybe even less. Thank you, Spencer. That's, uh, I'll have to think on that. All right. Right now, I would like to get to the point where I ask you uh, the personal question that I ask everybody. Well, you're the first person, but I will ask everybody this question. Um, what, what would you like to change? And what would you like to change, Spencer? Well, we just came out of this uh, tumultuous election season. There's a lot of divisiveness uh, in, a, in the United States right now. Uh, it's, not just, uh, it's not just that we have different opinions and different viewpoints. It's that we can't even seem to agree on facts anymore and, and what is actually going on in the world around us. Uh, and one of the issues that I have a concern about is that 
there's a lot of distrust of journalists and journalism, whether it's warranted or not. But what, what I would really love to see is to get back to a point where journalists can be unbiased and also widely perceived as unbiased so that we can at least agree on what the facts are in the world around us and trust what we're being told. All right. I, I, I think that is an excellent point. Um, it's something I, I happen to agree with that it's crazy that we can't even agree on the facts anymore. There, there's, I think part of the problem is, is that there's so much information out there that it's hard to even comprehend. And, and we rely on someone to curate that information for us and present it in a organized and uh, understandable way. Uh, and if there is a bias there, wow, I mean, we're, you're really going down a rabbit hole then. I also believe that there is a trend specifically you can look at within social media for people to be pushed into a certain direction, kind of herded, so to speak, uh, perhaps for advertising. I don't, I don't know what, what the reason is, or maybe people just want to be a part of uh, like-minded thinking. Do you think that contributes to the bias? Yeah, I think there are, I think there are a lot of echo chambers uh, in our societies that allow us to only hear the message that we want to hear. And then we question everything that comes from the outside. Yeah. You know, I've actually put a lot of thought into an unbiased media. I don't know if you recall, but I, it was even something I wanted to start at one point in terms of crowdsourcing the news. It is, it is a really difficult topic to get into. With If you look within journalism, they, they have a code of ethics in there, and there is a, I suppose you could call it a governing body that recommends different types of words that they should say and how, how they should say them, but that Really, we're talking about banging rocks together when we need an automobile. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, as you said, there, there's a lot of information out there and it's hard to, we, we can only observe so much of it ourselves and the rest we have to rely on the people telling us about it. And we need to know that we can rely on those people. Yeah. To not just tell us what they want us to hear, but to tell us the whole story and both sides of the viewpoints and facts. Yeah. Um, is it possible to achieve what, what you're hoping for? I think it's possible to achieve unbiased journalism. I don't know if it's possible to convince both sides that that journalist is unbiased in the current environment. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the, you could have an organization that gave every effort to be unbiased, but it might not be perceived that way. Yes. That's, that's an interesting point. Why, why do you think that is? If there's an article critical of your side, you're inclined to disbelieve it. And if there's an article that is critical of the other side, you're inclined to believe it. Yeah. I think one of the mistakes that I made when I tried to think of a solution for, for unbiased journalism was to start with the idea that, well, you could actually hit both sides and have people write articles for both sides and whoever's reading that would know that they're reading an article that is clearly listed having a specific bias. And then you would have uh, a, a third piece that would then analyze both of those in an unbiased way, or at least attempt to. 
I'm not really sure if that's possible um, now that I've seen things go down uh, since, you know, with this election and the previous one. Yeah, I don't know either. I was thinking just have people write a left biased one and a right biased one, and then as you read it, see which one causes you to roll your eyes more. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I always thought the same thing, but I think what I've seen is that people are not willing to look at the other side. Yeah, that's that's a lot of the issue. Um, you believe what is coming at you, if it's suitable to your mindset, and then you don't need to go look, and look anywhere else. You're, you don't feel the need to go look at the, what the other side is saying about the issue. Yeah, or even if you do look at it, you plug your ears and, um, and basically don't listen. Um, or worse yet, argue. But that's, that's not... Actually, I think the arguing is probably far more common. Yeah, that's a very natural human response. Um, do you have any words of wisdom for us uh, to, to combat that, uh, that weakness in us, Spencer? Uh, just try to be open-minded as I, you uh, perceive the world around you. All right. I, that's actually one of the, another main reason I wanted to bring you on is I, uh, I have a lot of respect for you in that regard that you have an open mind and are willing to listen. Well, thank you, Dale. You and I have had many uh, very intriguing conversations over the years. But I don't think I've ever changed your mind on anything. I doubt you have. <laughs> That's, uh, well, at least you give the appearance of uh, being <laughs> open-minded. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a very fact-based, data-driven, at least I like to believe that I am, kind of person. So uh, when you and I have these discussions, like you mentioned earlier, we often go try to pull statistics and data, and it's very helpful to me to to analyze the problems that way. Yeah, I, I think, and sometimes we, we learn something that we didn't uh, previously know. Absolutely. Changes uh, at least our perspective on some level. I, th I think this will be the last question, and then we can wrap things up. Do you think there is any danger with being so data-driven and missing out on the human aspect? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's not, you can't break everything in society down to a spreadsheet problem. You know, you need to look and observe and uh, keep your eyes open. All right. Well, words of wisdom from Spencer Howenstein. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. We, I really appreciated the time that you've given and hearing your thoughts. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. All right. Well, we didn't get a chance to talk about healthcare today, and I definitely think that falls under the basic needs category, but I have that scheduled for an, our next episode. Specifically, we'll be looking at developing medical technology, and um, we'll also, in the future, talk to other people in the healthcare field and see if we can get their opinion about how things might improve or just what the situation is right now.